0: So we're starting a new series um, in the book of Colossians. It's been great doing preparation for this. I've loved this book. And uh, you're going to love this book too. Because, not because of imaginative sermons I'm bringing. You're going to love this book because of the truth that it's going to reveal to us. There's amazing truths here about Jesus Christ. And how he's all sufficient for us. We don't need anything else except him when it comes to our faith lives. And so let's have a look at what God says to us in his words. So we're going to read together Colossians and chapter 1 verses 1 to 8 for this morning. Colossians chapter 1 verse 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, This morning, we're going to do a little bit of I need to do a bit of an introduction on the book of Colossians, just to put you in the context, and then we're going to look at a spiritual lesson we can get from it. So the Colossians, they faced a danger that we face today as well. What's the greatest danger to Christianity and, and the Christian that's you and I, if you're a believer here today, in 2020? What is the greatest danger? Anyone want to tell me? Apathy, false teaching, the world around us, us. sorry, pride, good Christians, good answers. Is it increasing anti-life legislation before us now as a country, abortion, euthanasia, misuse of drugs, maybe it's materialism, maybe it's persecution, not here but elsewhere in the world we're starting to find it here too or maybe it's an anti-christian press or maybe it's a society which is vocally unsympathetic with christians more and more so read the papers especially some characters maybe it is apathy lukewarmness or maybe it is materialism is it any of those i think there's a bigger danger and that's is danger of syncretism. What is syncretism? Syncretism is an attempt to blend non-Christian ideas, non-Christian philosophies with God's revealed truth. Melting pot. So we have different religions in this country. We have different ideas on how to live life. Different philosophies on how to live life. And we try and blend those into, as believers, God's truth. God says live this way. The world says live this way. And so I have this how shall I live pot. And I try and mix those things together. And it mixes together like water and oil. Syncretism. I'll give you some examples. And I've mentioned this one several times before, because it's so millennial. Sorry, millennials. I know God has clear stipulations for Christian marriage, but we live in a modern society, say the millennials, where attitudes have changed. And so we can live together as unmarried Christians, or as a Christian and a non-Christian, and accept that as the new norm. No one will bat an eyelid. And so that's the way, they don't even think twice now. Syncretism Syncretism is the attempted, and I say attempted, absorption of untruth with truth. For example, we should just minimize our differences in religions and accept other religions as valid expressions of personal faith and culture. We hear that from our politicians. And in the end, we worship the same God. And so we have something now called krislam. Christianity and Islam, and they want to worship together at combined public services. This one might be controversial, I might get stoned. Atua tanga on our marae. The way things are run on our marae. No one wants to talk about it as an elephant in the room. I'll read you what a Maori academic says on it, not me, a Maori academic in the world of theology. This is what he says, and this is from an e-journal on Pacific indigenous issues called Te Kaharua. This is what he writes. Syncretism is present on Almarai where Karakia Tafito, that is the prayers and the incantations of the ancient world brought into this time, so syncretism is present on our marae, where karakia, Tafito and Christianity often dance together. And particularly at Tangihanga, their funerals, where Hinenui te po, the goddess of death and Jesus, have been known to escort loved ones into the great mystery jointly. Now, if you've attended any funerals, you'll know. If you're at schools, you'll know. The prayers that are offered are prayers to the gods of the forest, the trees, the sky, and the ancestors, calling the ancestors syncretism. Whether we like it or not, it's in this country. Syncretism, you see, is Christianity which doesn't deny Christ. Are you listening? Syncretism is Christianity which doesn't deny Christ, but it dethrones Him. It dethrones what He teaches. He says, this is the truth. We say that we will listen to you, but we are also doing this. Syncretism is giving Christ a place, but not the supreme place. It's the biggest danger we face as Christians. Because it waters down our Christian faith. And it makes it a not true faith. It says, yes, Jesus, you're still the one I worship, but I want to add this. You see, the Christians at Colossae were also facing this danger. And we're going to look at it throughout the whole book. They'd begun so well, and they were currently strong in their testimony, but there was a threat in their midst as a church. And so Paul writes to them. Whose fault was this? The Romans. No, it's tongue-in-cheek. The Romans, actually, because the Roman Empire was that area. And at the time of writing of this book, about AD 60, The Roman Empire had stretched to 10.2 million square kilometers. Now, I'm giving you background today to put you in the picture. 10.2 million square kilometers to New Zealanders doesn't mean anything because our whole country is 270,000 square kilometers. 10.2 million square. Aussie, the whole of Aussie, is 7 million squared. So the Roman Empire was bigger than than the country of Australia in Central Europe. Massive. And they'd been ruling at the time of writing of the book of Colossae. They'd been ruling already for 1,500 years as an empire. Now the whole of known history in this country, that's pre maori settlement, is 1,280 years. That's half the time that the Romans had already been ruling in that central area. Okay, Just to give you some local perspective. They'd built thousands of kilometers of roads. 80,500 kilometers of roads. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, it's uh, top of the country to the bottom of the country 50 times. You think that's not much. Well, in those days it was. Because roads were built properly. I shouldn't say that. Any roading engineers? (laughs) Some of the roads are still being ridden on. And with the roads came communication. And communication shrank the whole world. As it does today with the internet the world's a global village now put idea out and it's gone and come back to you in the morning in the evening and it's a new idea and changed communication shrank the world through the roads and so people living in the roman empire had access to other ideas other cultures other religions and many times these cultures and ideas collided but many times they were just absorbed in the culture of that place and that's what was happening in colossae and then the Pax Romana you need to know about as well. We did this uh, kind of in Revelation when we looked at the letters to seven churches. But the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was over the whole of the Roman Empire, mostly. Because there was law and order. You see, people were in peace because of this perceived justice of the Roman law. The Roman law judged actions not intents, very interestingly. They had a much better law system than we have today in many aspects. They didn't judge hate crimes uh, or thoughts of hate crime. They only judged actions, not intent. And so freedom of expression was openly and legally allowed. Anyone could express an opinion and be heard legally. Whether you lived long after that was a whole different issue because you might have got arrested. But you were allowed to express your views openly and legally much better than what we're getting today. And that meant the gospel could go out as well into all these places. So thank you to the Romans as well. So what about Colossi? A little bit of um, background on Colossae. Colossae was a city located 100. 60 kilometers east of Ephesus. Now, if that means nothing to you, New Plymouth is 160 kilometers from us. So it's about that distance. And Ephesus was a major cosmopolitan. It was the Auckland of their day. All right? Everyone got, it was a melting pot of cultures, peoples. Everyone came there because they traveled for commerce. And so these ideas and everything came on the Roman roads. And so Colossi was there. Colossi was an ancient Persian city, and it was situated in the Lycus River Valley, near to two other towns we need to know about: Laodicea, we'd heard about that in where? Laodicea, Letters to the Seven Churches, and Hierapolis, uh, which was about 25 k's from Ephesus. So three, these from, sorry, Colossi. These three cities were living together, and though they weren't they were far from the big city in their terms. They weren't isolated because of the great Persian royal road which ran um, down from the big cities. And so the communication came down that road. Colossae had been an important city Um at 3 or 4 BC, because there was a flourishing textile business happening over there, and also they had this specific wool called Colossian wool, which has this deep red color, and many cloaks were made from that, the royal color. Um, And so it was really, really an important city. But then they had an expressway come through, which was moved, like we have, the Southern Express. And the road was moved west to run through Laodicea, and suddenly Colossus started getting smaller. Not the first time these things are happening in history. And so Colossi began to decline. And then to top it all, an earthquake came and destroyed the whole area in 861, which was a year after this letter was written. Interesting. And so Laodicea was built up really quickly because it was now the commercial hub. But Colossae was built up a little slower and it kind of never became bigger than a very large village. And we don't know about the other cities. And all that remains of Colossae today is just this historic mound and a big hotel. That's it. Scripture says that each of these cities had Christian churches. Chapter 4, verse 13 to 16 um, refers to the three churches over there at those three towns of Colossae, Laodicea, and Herapolis. So were there the Apostle Paul's church plants? Anyone? Did Paul plant these churches? I thought he planted all the churches. No, no, not these three. So this was under a different man called um, Epaphroditus. Um, So he had traveled to Ephesus where Paul had gone on his second missionary journey. And Paul had stayed in Ephesus for a while. He had planted a church there with Timothy and... They'd stayed in that area for two years preaching the gospel and building disciples in the church of Ephesus. And as they did, people came from the surrounding towns to Ephesus to hear Paul's teaching. And one of those was this man. And so he came and he was converted under the ministry of Paul. He was discipled under Paul. And then he went back to Colossae and took the gospel with him. And scripture says in Acts 19 verse 10 that... In the time that Paul was in Ephesus, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What a blessing on that ministry that Paul had. Many, many people heard the gospel in that whole central area. And so Epaphras... Sorry, I said Epaphroditus last time. I added an itis which shouldn't be there. Epaphras then returned to Colossae, and under the Lord's blessing... He spread the word and these three churches were planted in these three sister cities. So that was Epaphras. And now Epaphras is really concerned because he's noticed that this false teaching is starting to appear. And I'm going to talk about that now. False teaching has started to appear in the churches. And so now he travels back to Paul who is in Rome at this stage under prison arrest. And he brings paul this major concern and so paul writes to the christians at colossi all right so that's kind of basically a bit of the background there now the population at colossi this is really really important you see it was really diverse made up mainly of gentiles all these foreigners who streamed in for for um trade and many of them came to the churches so it's a mainly gentile church at colossi but Antiochus III had settled about 2,000 Jewish families in that area too in 213 BC and so a smaller remnant of these Jewish people remained in Colossae and the surrounding areas doing business and they also came to the church, to the churches rather. But what they were teaching in the churches, the Jewish minority was starting to push Judaism inside the churches and they were starting to push that you need to have jewish feasts you need to have circumcision you need to have sabbath worship if you are to be a true believer in jesus christ so that's the one thing paul's going to address they were saying christ is not enough you need judaism as well you need to get back to your roots you need to use more hebrew terminology Now, I know this magazine is circulated amongst us, and a lot of good is in this magazine, but you really need to sift what you read. I'm sorry, Sue, I have to speak about this now. For Zion's sake, there's some really good background information on this, on what is happening in Israel now, state-wise and militarily. But some of the people who make comments in this are really, really off track. And I need to warn you, because it's the same issue. So I'm going to just read a small extract from the current copy that came out. And it's called Salvation is of the Jews. Yes, I know it's a verse in scripture, but they've misquoted it. When we Christians, I'm quoting from Franz Rosenzweig, When we Christians do not walk together with the Jews, we are in danger of regressing to the paganism from which we emerged, assimilation to the idolatry of culture and nation are constant temptations for Christians. And so what they are saying is we need to have tight bonds with Jewish people and we do need to be praying for them because they do need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But we don't have to be like the Jews. We don't have to be Jewish in the way we do things. He carried on to say, he became an influential theologian and he said this, listen to this, He said, Christianity is Judaism for the Gentiles. That's exactly what Jesus taught against. Because Jesus was always going at the Judaizers and saying, you don't need the Judaism. You need Jesus Christ in your life. You need the gospel message in your life. That's what you need. You don't need Jewishness first. So we are not anti-Semitic. But we are pro-Jesus Christ. Yes, we must pray for our Jewish um, people that they come to the Lord in droves. Because at this stage, they are not. And many Gentiles are coming to the Lord, says Scripture, to make them jealous before the Lord. But we need to pray for them. We mustn't become like them. And you're not going to be a better Christian by knowing all the Hebrew terms and all that. Yes, it's going to give you a richness when you understand what everything is all about. But you don't need to use those terms to be a better Christian. I'm going to just close with this from this article. It says, if anyone reading this article draws back repulsively, it might mean the difference between life and death due to the fact that there will be absolutely no anti-Semitism in God's coming kingdom on earth. Well, my friend who ever wrote this, there will be no Semitism there either. Because before the Lord, there's neither Greek, there's neither Roman, nor Jew, nor Gentile, nor male or female. We are human souls before him. So we need to lay this to rest. But I ask you to please be careful and sift what you read. This is exactly what was happening in the church at Colossae. The second problem that Paul has to address is the one of Greek mysticism. So it was the Jewish influence of Judaism, but also Greek mysticism. You see, that was really prevalent in that society. And what they were teaching was this. They were teaching that the human body is not that important. The spirit is really important. And Christ's real body wasn't that important. His spirit was important. And also they were they were, they were teaching that... Angels are really, really important. They are not just the messengers of God, but they are also intermediaries. And so you can worship angels and you can pray through angels. Where do we hear that today? The Catholic Church will have a lot of this and also worshiping and pray not worshiping Mary, but praying through Mary and the saints. Syncretism. Nothing's changed. So it sounds like I'm going at everyone today. I'm not I'm just showing you what God's word is doing. And we need to be aware because we just take these things on board and it just it's the new normal. So what was Paul's concern? You see there was this power struggle for the hearts and the mind minds of the Colossians. There was this old trick around and it, if you've been a parent you'll know the trick, all right? The baby's a little bit intent it's, kind of focusing a bit too much on one toy. How do you get that toy away from it without bringing the whole world down? What's it called? Distract and? Give it something else, all right? Distract and? Replace. Same trick used here. So how do you distract people from the truth? You give them something new and enticing which will incite them and then you replace it with other so-called truth. Oldest trick in the book. Satan used it on Eve. Distract and replace. And so Paul is, is speaking here to the hearts and the minds of the Colossians. And he's saying to them firstly that Rome and the Roman Empire and all the glitziness and the attractions and new ideas and all the new inventions which came from different cultures coming together. Think of the Chinese coming in and mixing with the cultures because they were an ancient culture around already trading. Think of all the inventions they were bringing with them. These People were standing around, we've never seen this. Think of the Greek inventions that were coming along there. They influenced the way the Romans built their siege towers and things like it. He was saying to them, the, Rome, Rome and the Roman Empire is not your hope. Look behind the mask, says the Apostle Paul. Don't be taken up by the system of Rome. Rome uses a cross to crucify people to show its power over people. Rome demands of you to put your hope in its system. But Jesus Christ has died, and Jesus needs no mask. He openly used that very same cross to have himself crucified to show his power over sin. It was an open story for everyone to see. And it's the only one of these two powers that is a lasting power, says the Apostle Paul. Take note. And with the benefit of hindsight, you and I, we're sitting in 2020 and history books, we can see that Roman power is now only studied in history books. But Jesus Christ still saves sinners from sin through his power. That's what Paul's telling them then. He saves now. Take note. And then the second thing he says is, this same Jesus Christ alone is your salvation. You don't need anything else. And please note here, he doesn't reprimand the church. There's not one word of reprimand here. They're going, they're going really well. They're doing well. They, they've got a love for Jesus Christ. Look at the characteristics there in verses 4 and 5. He mentions they've got a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. They've got a love for the saints. And they have a heaven centered hope. There's not a word against them. Fantastic. But there's a threat in their midst. Now it's important we need to note why they were doing well, because this is the bit of theology we need for today, all right? This is the Bible lesson. We finished with the history, now the lesson. What makes a real Christian? What makes a real deal Christian? It's this. Have you got these three characteristics? And through the Spirit, do this check in your life now. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ alone? You need nothing else in your life. Do you have a love for the saints, the followers of Jesus Christ, His church? Look around you. Do you have a love for these people who say they follow Jesus Christ? You see, these two ideas are inseparable. If you love Jesus Christ, you will love the church. An old famous dead guy called Augustine said this. He was an early Roman Christian, by the way. He said this. No man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. You understand the relationship? you got a father and a mother. They're that close. If you love Christ, you love his people. Why do I mention that? I'm harping on about it. Because it's another idea being pushed around now by Christians. I first want to get to Apostle John. He says it in this way about Christ and the love of the church. We love, why? Because Christ first loved us. 1 John 4 19. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, and he's talking to Christians about believers, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So look around you. Can you see your fellow believers? You need to love them. Because you love Christ who you have not yet seen. And if you say you love Christ but you don't love these people around you scripture says you're a liar not me scripture says and we need to take it to heart you see there's this idea floating around now that i love christ but i don't like the church that's why i don't go to church the bible says you're a liar there's a third characteristic True believers, genuine ones, have a heaven centered hope. Their focus is on the world to come, and we're going to get into this in the book of Colossians. Their focus is on the world to come, even though they live in the present world. This world is not your home. Don't get so settled in it. I need to get this lesson every single week. My wife's nodding. Our aspirations are focused. On that which is everlasting. How often we make decisions and it's just short term. We're not even thinking. What does this do for the wider picture? We shouldn't be thinking on the temporary pleasures and the short lived rewards that this world has to offer. That's like Rome. Our spending should show that we have the kingdom in mind and not just the accumulation of earthly treasures here of Rome. So, two challenges I'll leave with you as I finish. Here it is. Are you the real deal? As you said here this morning, are you the real deal? Is your faith in Jesus Christ alone? No dependence on anything else. Nothing religious that you hold on to. No Jewish terminology, feast, Sabbath worship. No horoscope. No your own goodness. Not church attendance. Not doing Christian stuff. On Christ alone. Is your hope. Do you love the saints? Warts and all. Do you love them? Especially the warts. Do you love them? They will rub you the wrong way. But you need to love them because you say you love Christ. You need to be attending church with them. You need to be. Not come sporadically and grudgingly. But come and worship with God's people. He says you must. Love his people. Do you have a heaven-centered hope? Or are you wearing the lead boots of love for this world which will drag you down? And then secondly, does Christ reign supreme in your life? Are you wearing the mask of Christianity? You're saying the right things. You're doing the right things. You're wearing, bringing the right Bible along. You've even got the right version. But is your dependence on anything else than on Jesus Christ? Are you living real Christianity? Does your life give Christ a a place, but not the supreme place in your life? What is in your life which has supplanted Jesus Christ? What does it look like? Are you trying to merge your ideas for life with God's commands for living? Which comes first? His ideas or your ideas? What's the solution to this? You and I need to hear again and to understand the grace of God. You see, we've forgotten who we were and what we are. Christ found us when we were lost and dead. He gave us life. He gave us a way to God. He took our sins away. We need to preach that gospel. To ourselves again. And I need to be taking it out to the, to the world around me. But I need to preach it to my own soul. Because my, old soul, my own soul has got a very short term memory. We need to ask God to give us undivided hearts again. To strip away anything. Any idea. Any philosophy. Any activity. Which would take first place in our lives. Help us, God, we pray, to make you first. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would save us from this danger of syncretism. And it might not be ideas from another religion, but it will definitely be ideas from the philosophy of how to do life in 2020. And they will compete directly with what you've told us to do in your word. Lord, save us from taking shortcuts with your word. Save us from trying to do a little bit of your word and, and the, how you tell us to live. And, and, and in other aspects, trying to live the way the world tells us to live. Trying to mix the world's philosophy with your truth. Because in the end, it's going to confuse and distract and pull us away from our first love, Jesus Christ. Lord, keep us true to you. Keep our noses in your word. Keep our spirits sensitive to your spirit. Lord, guide us and protect us and keep us pure, we pray, in thought, in mind, and in action. We ask this because we as weak human beings need you, Lord Jesus, almighty God. Amen.